Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. Awesome to have you here with us. Uh, my name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors, and I want to say hello to those of you at our online campus. Great to have you joining us there. In our parent viewing rooms, it's a great option if you have small children that you prefer to keep with you during the service. And uh, anybody watching in our cafe, awesome to have you there. Uh, real quick, some of you are like, what was the thing with Welcome Back John? That's our base, one of our bass players. And uh, he had broken his collarbone this summer. And so this is one of his first times back. I, ta- I, I assume it's hard to play bass with a broken collarbone. So uh, he's back playing. So that was the, that was the welcome back, John. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 healed up and whole. Um, also, I just want to make this uh, little disclaimer that uh, there are a lot of open seats at eight thirty or eleven. So just if you're like, man, it is getting tight in here, uh, plenty of open seats at those other services. Just saying, just saying. Uh, this week is our legacy offering. Uh, that means that uh, once a year in November we do this and we say, you know what, we want to give even beyond our regular giving to projects and initiatives around the world and here in our uh, local community. And so we uh, take one Sunday every year and just go, man, we want to leave a legacy that outlives our lives so that when our life comes to an end and, and the next generation comes, that uh, the stories will continue to ripple into the next generation of what our generosity has done. And so every uh, year during this time of the year, uh, one Sunday we go, this is our legacy offering and you can give above and beyond. So the way to do that today is uh, to do that through your app or in your envelope. You can mark that right there. And uh, 100% of what comes in through that, we give 100% of that away. So thank you so much for your generosity in that area. Uh, Last week I was um, in Houston. So uh, Chandler, our youth pastor, spoke. He did a fantastic job. If you see him, make sure you tell him. And uh, I was speaking at a church in Houston, and I was flying home. I I went in on a flew on a Friday. Uh, I actually spoke at a men's retreat on a Friday uh, and on Saturday and then spoke at their church on Sunday and flew home. And so I'm on my way to the airport, and the score of the Vikings game was like 27 to 10. (laughs) And so I'm like, okay, you know what? It, Vikings are having a good season. They're playing the Bills in Buffalo. It's a loss. No worries. That's fine. I'll just fly home. I'm sitting in the airport. I'm waiting to get on my flight home. And I get this text message from a friend. And it said, Justin Jefferson is unreal. And I went, I, I assume you're being sarcastic, right? I, I just thought it was one of my buddies like busting my chops. He goes, I'm not being sarcastic at all. Are you not watching this game? And I said, no, I'm sitting in an airport. And right then, uh, as we're texting, I hear this like eruption in the airport of people cheering. And I go, what is going on? And so I walk around the corner and there's this little sports bar and they have the game on. And it's all people flying home to Minnesota. So it's all Minnesotans hanging out, watching the game. And what had happened was they had just recovered a uh, fumble in the end zone with 25 seconds left to go ahead. And I was like, what in the world? Uh, From the time I left to come to the airport, they've scored like 20 points and taking the lead. I can't believe this. So we're all standing there, all people from Minnesota. We're high-fiving each other. We're cheering. We're talking about, oh, man, you're from Minnesota. You're from Minnesota. All right, this is a great game. And then we all watch and like, you know, almost disbelieve, but also not because it's kind of like we're Vikings fans, so we kind of know that they give it up. And, and, and they come back and they tie it and it goes to overtime. And right as they go, it's like, they're, we're going to overtime. It's like, now boarding for Minnesota, please get on. And I was like, no! I, I, I almost considered taking a later flight just to watch the game. And so there's people like streaming it on their phones uh, in line as we're waiting to get It's like, can we see your boarding pass, sir? They're like, oh, hold on. I got to switch off the game. And uh, there was actually a woman in front of me, no lie, uh, watching the game because her daughter was FaceTiming her and holding up her phone on the other end to the TV at her house. <laughs> and I was watching over her shoulder like, can I get in on this? Like, I just need to see what's going on. 
And so we're watching this game collectively, all strangers. And uh, we get on the plane, and I'm like, I'm flying Delta. OK, I can turn the game on. They have a little screen. You can watch live TV. So I turn the game. I'm like, yes, I got in my seat. I'm watching. It's in overtime. And then every time they make an announcement, the screen pauses. And you know they make like 37 announcements when you first get on the plane. Like I'm like, we've flown before, all right? I promise I'll buckle up. <laughs> so finally, all the announcements stop, and I was able to finally watch the end of the game. And it was unreal. The guy behind me is screaming it on the phone. He's like, we're on the two-yard line, dude. Like, we don't know each other. And everybody's high-fiving and just having the best time ever. And then, of course, they won, and it was amazing. I say all that to say, uh, reminds me of another story uh, uh, in an airport. Uh, there was a, I, I heard this recently, a woman who uh, bought a sleeve of Oreos to go take with her on a flight. And as she was in the airport, uh, she was in the, uh, waiting to get, waiting to board. And she's in the airport waiting and she opens up her Oreos and uh, she starts to eat them. And there was a guy sitting next to her and he looked over at her and he grabbed one of her Oreos and he ate it. And she was like, same reaction you all just had, like, oh, how dare he? And she was so confused and yet a little bit indignant. And so she like looked at him and she reached over and she ate another one. And he just smiled and he looked back at her. He grabbed another one and ate it. And now she's getting really upset. Like she's like, her blood is boiling. And so she looks at him and like, she, she actually like grabs another one and like eats it aggressively, like to make a point. He just smiles, grabs another one, eats it. And this goes on for a couple of minutes, and finally there's only one Oreo left. And to her, like, shock, he actually takes the last Oreo, splits it, and gives her half. And she can't believe it. She's losing her mind. And so she gets on the flight, and as she gets on the flight, she opens her bag, and she's pulling out her headphones to watch something on the screen, maybe the end of the Vikings game. And uh, there in her backpack is her sleeve of Oreos. So she hadn't actually been stolen from. She was actually eating his Oreos. And he was kind enough to share his last one. It's amazing, right? And so here's the question I want to ask you today. Not how many Oreos you have, but how willing are you to share them with others? That's the question, right? It's not about how many Oreos, but how willing are you to share them? Let me ask you this question. What's your number? Not what's your phone number, not what's your you know, sleep bed number, uh, your sleep mattress number. We're talking about your financial number. If you are able to quantify the amount of income that you could say, okay, that's enough. That's all I need. What would it take for you to live a content life? Uh, how much do you have to have? How much do you have to own? Well, how, how big does the pile need to get? Or let me ask you this. What kind of value do you attach to money in your life? Uh, how has it helped you? How has it hurt you? What has it helped you accomplish in your life? What kind of freedom and joy has it brought you? What good have you done with your money? What about this? What have you given up in order to pursue money? Uh, what worries and anxieties plague you about money? What kind of pain has it caused? Uh, ultimately, here's the question. How much of it do you really need? How much of it do you need? And as we continue our series, Faith Forward, we've been walking through the book of James. And we've been looking at what James, the brother of Jesus, says about how to move our faith forward, a faith that actually helps us uh, gain traction in certain areas of our lives and practical wisdom. He pulls from the Proverbs and he pulls from the teachings of Jesus. And there are a few things, there are very, very few things that will move your faith forward in life, like generosity. Generosity is one of those things. And yet there's a lot of goofy teachings out there when it comes to uh, the church and your money. And maybe you're here for the first time, or maybe you're just exploring faith in God, and you're like, I knew it. I knew at some point they were going to do this. The other shoe is finally dropped. They're talking about money. 
And I just want you to know that we get to talk about this from a place of health. We get to talk about this without using guilt, without using manipulation. My hope is that you'll walk out of here and go, that was a really healthy teaching on what Jesus's view on money is. That's our goal. And yet there's some really extreme messages. One is live a godly life and God will make you rich. Super extreme. We don't uh, subscribe to that teaching. But uh, another one flips it the other direction and says, uh, God doesn't care if you have a lot of money. He just doesn't want you to enjoy any of it. So you better suffer. And that's, we don't subscribe to that kind of teaching either. Both of those are extremes. So where does God actually land on this topic? Here are a couple of filters that I think will really help us. The first one is this. God doesn't care about our net worth. Did you know that God doesn't care about your net worth as far as how he values you as a person? You could have zero or you could have lots of zeros, and that doesn't mean anything to God in terms of how he views you as a person. God sees you through the lens of a son or a daughter. He doesn't view you through the lens of your net worth. Wealth and poverty each have their own unique challenges. In fact, in Proverbs, it says, if I grow rich, I may deny you. And if I'm too poor, I may steal from you. So God, just give me enough for today. If I get too rich, I might become arrogant and forget about you. And if I'm too poor, I might be tempted to steal and dishonor your name. And both extremes challenge our decision to fully trust God and his provision. So here's what we know. God doesn't care about our net worth. He does care about how we get it. He does care that we don't cut corners in order to get it. He does care that we don't cheat people in order to get it. He does care that we don't sacrifice our integrity in order to get it. He does care that, you know, we pay our whatever we are owed to the government, that we're obedient in that regard. He does care that we don't sacrifice our ethics in order to get it. So God doesn't care about our net worth. He does care about how we get it. In fact, uh, again, in the Proverbs, it says that uh, stolen bread tastes sweet, but it turns to gravel in the mouth. And then here's the third thing. He also cares about how we use it. He, he, he doesn't care about our net worth. He, doesn't care, he, he does care about how we get it. He also cares about how we use it. Money isn't bad. It's neutral. It's how it's used that either makes it a net gain or a net loss in our lives. And so what does James have to say about money? So James, in James chapter 5, actually writes to people, and it's kind of a lighthearted stroll. It's a real kind of feel-good uh, section of verses as James kind of rips the fingernails off of rich people. It's, a, it's, a little, it's an interesting uh, section of verses. James is talking to some wealthy abusers, and he knows that the church is listening in as he uh, shares this. And so here's what James writes. We'll read this together. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. See, nothing but encouragement here. Uh, this corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not even resist you. Now, you'll notice wealth is not an antidote for anxiety. In fact, uh, I've known the stress of having your money run out before your month does. And you also uh, can have the stress of having a lot. Both newer and bigger and better doesn't always result in less worry and less stress and less anxiety. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. Uh, he said, earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry. But in truth, they are what cause anxiety. It's fascinating. 
And so James confronts three different groups of people in this set of verses. First of all, James confronts those who are hoarding their wealth. James confronts those who are hoarding their wealth. He says, look here, you rich people, right? Weep and groan with anguish because of the terrible troubles ahead of you. Now, uh, interestingly enough, I have never seen that on a, uh, on a coffee mug or a Christian bumper sticker. You, you won't find that on any of the Jesus junk that's available out there. But at its core, hoarding is driven by fear. And fear blinds us to the toxic nature of hoarding. See, uh, one example is how we pack uh, so much stuff in attics and basements and garages. And when we run out of room in those storage areas, then we go out and we buy a separate storage unit that we can store our stuff in because what if I need it? And it's rooted in this fear. What if I need it? And what ends up happening is all of our stuff spends its life there until it's no longer good to anybody and it ends up in a landfill. Or best case scenario, we sell it in the front yard for a nickel. (laughs) And that's what happens to our stuff. And James is confronting those who do this, not only with their stuff, but with their wealth. He wants them to understand we're blessed for a reason. And so he's, he's confronting a group of people who are hoarding their wealth. But he's also confronting a second group of people, those who are cheating their workers. They're cheating their workers. If you're driven by a need for consumption to the point that you are willing to abandon your ethics, if you're driven to the point of consumption, to the point that you're willing to abandon your morals, that you're willing to cheat other people, and to sacrifice your own integrity and your own morals and your own ethics in the pursuit of more, James is confronting that behavior. He says, uh, the the cries of the people you've cheated have reached the ears of God. And when I I read that, it reminds me of like when I was a kid, or maybe you've done this, you've had this experience with your own kids. But when I was a kid and like me and my brother would be doing something, and then you do something to him that you, you you know you shouldn't have done, and he starts to cry, and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, shh. Anybody had that experience with your own kids? And you hear it, and you hear one of the kids crying, and then you're like, what's going on over there? And then the one kid is just like, no, I'm sorry, shh, don't, don't, mom's going to hear you. And James says, this is what's happening. You're treating God's children in such a way, in your ambition for more, because you've been willing to sacrifice your integrity and your morals and your ethics, and in your pursuit of more, you're actually cheating other people in order to get more for yourself, and God has heard the cries of those people. And he is not happy about the way you're treating his children. He's not happy about the way that you're treating people who are created in his image in your pursuit of more. And then then James confronts a third group of people, those who are self-indulgent without generosity. Those who are uh, self-absorbed but aren't generous toward others in any way. And this week, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. We're hosting, I think, uh, 28 or 32 people at our house this week. It's going to be awesome. Uh, That's like, I love that kind of energy. But here's what happens. Every year, one of the most amazing things happens on Thanksgiving weekend. It's this incredible pivot, and it happens in America. It's fascinating. It's called Black Friday. Have you noticed this? It makes it so fascinating is that for one single day as a nation, in in, in a one 24-hour period, we shift from thankful for to I want more. It's unbelievable. We, We make this massive pivot from grateful to cartful. And we spend one day being grateful, and then we spend one month where we get our fill. And... It's not all totally our fault. Here's kind of what happened. Back in the day, I got a social media account. It was called MySpace. Anybody still have a MySpace? If you do, I, that's impressive. But then Facebook came along, and Facebook was fun. You, could, you, could, you had this wall, and you could put flair on it, right? And you could connect with friends and add a picture here and there. And then Facebook started to change, and uh, they figured out a way to monetize it. And all of a sudden, Facebook uh, w- 
became this place for ads. And it showed you everything that you could have, all the different products that will make your life better. I don't have the newest glasses. I don't have the right hunting equipment. I don't even hunt. But now that I see all this hunting equipment, I'm going to take up hunting. It's unbelievable. I, I need more pottery for my barn. I don't even have a barn, but I'm going to get a barn so I can put pottery in it. Uh, we're constantly dissatisfied with what we have because we live in a culture that constantly shows us what we could have. And it's difficult for us to be content. And if we're not careful, we're going to head into the next few weeks, into the holidays, and it will quickly become the season of discontentment. And my problem is just about every day, just about everything uh, that I'm, I'm reminded of everything I don't have. And I didn't even know that I needed it until I saw it. And also, this is what's so amazing is uh, it just so happens that they knew that I might also like this product. And they also figured out that um, related to what I've viewed is this product and that people who purchased this product also tend to purchase this product. Isn't that amazing how they know all that? They also know that these items are frequently bought together. And they're constantly showing that to me. It's amazing. How in the world do you stay content in a world where everyone knows what you're buying and they keep dangling it in front of you? And if we're honest, the problem is not that we, it's not what we don't have. It's the uh, awareness of all the stuff we could have. That's what gets us in trouble. And James so wants our faith to move forward. He wants us to understand what it looks like to trust God with our stuff. Because there are very few things that will actually move your faith forward like generosity. And here's why. Here's what Jesus teaches. It's never about more. It's always about management. When it comes to money, when it comes to finances, when it comes to our stuff, it's not about more. It's always about management. See, Jesus taught that it's not about how much you have. It's about how you manage whatever amount you have. Because generosity is much less of a money issue. It's a lot more of a heart issue. It's a lot more of a trust issue. In other words, do I actually believe what Jesus teaches when it comes to money and possessions? Do I genuinely put my trust in him that he is the one who provides for me? And maybe you've never thought about your money this way, but Jesus actually taught that you can't take any of it with you when you die. But you can send it on ahead. You've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. But you can send it on ahead. And maybe you never realized that. What does that mean? Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said this, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them. It's interesting. James pulls that same thing into his warning. He says, your clothes have become moth-eaten rags. He's pulling from this teaching of Jesus. Jesus says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Now, we all know what storing treasure up means. Storing something up means. It means to set it aside and put it away so that we can access it later. That's what it means to store it up. But what does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? How do I do that? Is there a bank in heaven? Is there money in heaven? Like, how does that work? What does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? <clears throat> I think what he means is that if you'll take a portion of what God has entrusted to you in this life and you invest it in something that has eternal significance, something that has an impact in eternity, then you will be making an investment in your own future. Now, that's smart, by the way. If you ask any financial planner, hey, should I spend everything I have now or should I save some up for the future? Any good financial planner will tell you, save some for the future. Invest in your future. And Jesus says the way to invest in your own future is to actually invest in things that will outlive your life. 
things that make an impact for eternity. And so if we're going to leave a legacy as a church, if we're going to leave a legacy as individuals, we have to ask the question, after I die, uh, how will I wish my money would have made an impact? And one day, you're going to outgrow your house. You will not live in that house forever. One way or another, that house at some point will move on to someone else. You will outgrow your car. You won't always drive that car. You're going to outgrow your phone. You're going to outgrow your computer. All of these things at some point will pass away. With that in mind, does it make any sense to spend all of our earthly money and invest it in things that are temporary? It doesn't make sense. In fact, later on, a few verses later, Jesus would actually say this. So don't worry about having enough food or drink or clothing. Now, these are the things that we tend to worry about. Just our needs. Am I going to have enough to live? Am I gonna, are my needs going to be met? But he says, don't worry about having enough food or drink or clothing. Why be like the pagans who are so deeply concerned about these things? Your heavenly father already knows all your needs, and he will give you all you need from day to day if you live for him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. So Jesus says, don't store up treasure here on earth. Store it up in heaven. There's a way to do that. And then he says, you don't need to worry about all these earthly things. Basically, if you focus your attention and your priorities on God's kingdom, then God is actually going to take care of you here and now, and he's going to provide these things. And what's fascinating is these two sections of verses are actually go hand in hand. It's actually one teaching. It's one uh, sort of sermon that Jesus is giving. And so basically, Jesus says this, if you'll invest your money in something that is eternal, you will have less and less worry and anxiety around those things that are earthly and temporary. And if you invest all your earthly money in earthly things, you will have more stress and more worry around those things. Why? Because Jesus says, and we know it's true, our heart follows our money. Wherever I invest my money, my heart follows. It's why some of you did not care at all about the NFL until you joined a fantasy league. And all of a sudden you had $5 riding on it and you're like, I need the third string running back from the Cleveland Browns to score a touchdown today. I, you're super invested in a guy you've never heard of before. Because your $5 might become seven. It, right? It's, it, we just know this is true. We know this intuitively. If you buy a stock in a company, uh, you've never checked that stock before, but now you're checking the app every day. I want to see how my stock is doing. I want to see how my stock is doing. You drive by like that company headquarters and you're pointing it out to people in the car. You're like, I'm a part owner in that company. It, it's why teenagers don't generally like get up on a Saturday and watch HGTV. But those same teenagers become young adults and they meet someone and they get married and they buy a home together. And then one of them says, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? And the other one says, I don't know. You want to go to the parade of homes? And the other one's like, yeah, let's do that. That sounds awesome. Because like, what has happened to us? You know, it's like, because we, now we have a home. So now we're invested, right? Your heart follows your money. And whenever we invest our financial resources, our hearts become deeply invested in those things. So if we want to have hearts that are deeply invested in accomplishing the mission of helping people find and follow Jesus, if we want to have uh, hearts that are invested in accomplishing God's mission around the world and, and here in our community, then we have to direct our financial resources towards God's kingdom. And here's what's amazing. God promises that when we do that, he will provide for the things that we need. It doesn't say he'll give us everything that we want, but he'll provide for our needs. We'll never go without. And isn't that what all of us want? Don't all of us want to make an investment in our own future? Don't we want less worry and stress in our lives? Don't we want more joy? And wouldn't every one of us say, I want my life to count for something, that I want to leave a legacy that outlives my life? 
Wouldn't all of us say, like, I, I want to I invest in something that when my life is said and done, that the, the ripple effect of the things that I did continue to live on in the next generation? Don't we want that in our lives? And I, I want to know the stories of people whose lives are forever changed because I was willing to invest what God had entrusted to me. And Jesus says there's a way you can do that. It's called generosity. It's through giving out of what God has given to you, taking a percentage of everything God entrusts and investing it back in God's kingdom in his work in the world. And so uh, here's how to be consistently generous. I'm going to give you some basic steps. This is what the scriptures teach on how to be consistently generous, not just every once in a while, but just live a consistently generous life. Here's what it looks like. Number one, give back to God first. Now, I intentionally wrote the word back, give back to God first, because everything we have comes from him. So really, all we're, re- all we're doing is returning back to God out of what he has entrusted to us. So we give back to God first. And, and we give back to God every time that we get paid. It says this in Proverbs, uh, honor God with everything you own. Give him the first and the best. See, uh, when, you, when you get paid, uh, whether it's weekly or monthly or annually or however you get paid, have it in your plan. Okay, God, before I do anything else, I'm going to give to you first. I'm just going to give it to you. The American way of thinking about money is I, I spend on me. If there's any leftover, then I'm going to save a little bit. And if there's any leftover after that, I might give God a tip. God, I'm going to tip you. Hey, thanks for the eternal life and the whatnot. Here's a tip. And the truth is, all God is saying is, God's not saying, I want you to give so much that you can't live. He's just saying, reverse that. Reverse those buckets on the ends. So uh, give back to God first, then save, and then live on the rest. That's generosity and wisdom combined together. This is what James teaches. This is what Jesus teaches. And when you get paid, you just say, I'm going to give back to God first. And it's an act of faith. God, I trust that you're the owner and I'm the manager. I want to manage it well in a way that is responsible towards you and generous towards others. Now, that might sound incredibly self-serving. If you're here for the first time, if you're checking out church for the first time, or uh, maybe you're just checking out this church for the first time, or you're just exploring faith in general, and you're just like, well, of course you're going to say that. You're the pastor. That's the answer, because then you get more money. Let me just clear that up for you, okay? The reality is this. Uh, My salary is preset. There's zero impact on what happens when uh, the church continues to give and grow in generosity. Also, I want you to know, our family lives this way. I do this myself. We're never going to teach you something that we're not leading the way in. So this is how we live. This is how we've lived for 20-some years. It's not some clever scheme sort of cooked up so that pastors can pay their rent, all right? In fact, if I wanted to make a whole bunch of money, I know I could just return to my career in modeling, okay? So it's not... The truth is this. I have a new understanding of wealth. Once I started following Jesus, there's a new understanding of wealth. I don't see my money and my stuff as my own. I recognize God's entrusted it to me, and so I'm going to bring back to him first. Recognizing it's a statement of faith. I'm the manager. God's the owner. And returning to God first is a constant reminder of my position as manager and God's position as owner. Now, here's the second way. If you want to be consistently generous, you give back to God a percentage. And all throughout the scriptures, uh, there's a, a pattern of God saying, a percentage of what you have belongs to me. Because it's not about equal giving, it's about equal sacrifice. And here's what I know when I don't do a percentage. I don't, if you're anything like me, this is what I do. If, if it's not a percentage... I convince myself that I'm more generous than I really am, and I talk myself into lesser and lesser amounts to give back to God. But when it's a percentage, I just go, God, here's what came in. I'm giving you a percentage right off the top. I I, I don't even have to think about it. I just go, I'm surrendered to you. I I want 
to give back to you out of what you've given me. And here's a percentage. I've already uh, agreed in my mind, this is what I'm going to give back to you. And I do that right off the top. See, uh, it says this in Deuteronomy. This is written in the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew scriptures. It's written to people living in the uh, early, you know, 4,000 years ago uh, in, in uh, the nation of Israel. It says, make an offering of 10%, a tithe. Bring this into the presence of God. In this way, there's a point to this, in this way you will learn to live in deep reverence before God as long as you live. The goal of this is that I, in doing that, I actually understand my position as manager and his position as owner. That in doing that on a regular basis, I'm bringing back and it, it, it helps me to live in a deep reverence of God. Now, the actual word used is a little bit archaic. It's called tithe. And in modern world, we kind of think of that as giving or being generous, but it actually means a tenth. It's a 10%. And they lived in an agricultural society and they would take 10% of their crops. So it'd be what they called their first fruits. And they would bring that back to God and they would give it to the Levites at the temple. And that sounds crazy because you didn't know if the rest of the crop would come in or if you'd have a drought or what would happen, but that's the point. It was an act of faith saying, God, I trust that you're the one who this comes from anyways, and you're going to provide. I'm dependent on you. You're my provider. Now, some people would say this, isn't that Old Testament theology, isn't that from the Hebrew scriptures written to a, the nation of Israel a long time ago? And the answer is yes, it is. That doesn't necessarily free us from being obedient to what Jesus teaches. And a lot of times when people ask that question, what they're, they're asking it from a position of, so now I have a loophole to not be as generous as God wants me to be. That's the wrong question. The real question is this, what, what did Jesus teach about Old Testament, uh, the things that were written to the nation of Israel thousands of years ago, and what does that look like for us today? And Jesus assumed that giving a, a, a 10% of what he's entrusted to you was actually a starting point. Because everywhere that Jesus talked about the Old Testament and what was written to the, in the Hebrew scriptures, he elevated it. For instance, uh, Jesus would say things like this. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus took what was the letter of the law and he pulled out the spirit of the law and he elevated it and said, look, the idea behind this is driven by love. Jesus would say things like, you, you've heard it said in the law that um, if, you, if you murder someone, Jesus says, but if you even have hatred in your heart towards someone, it's the same as murder in God's eyes. Like if you even harbor unforgiveness, it's the same. So Jesus pulled the, the spirit of the law out of the letter of the law and he elevated it. He said, look, this is what it means to have your heart transformed by the grace of Jesus. So when it came to this idea that, well, giving and generosity is just this Old Testament thing that we don't have to live by anymore, the assumption from Jesus was, no, this is actually something that was written so that we live in a, in a reverence and an awe of God and how much he provides for us. And so the assumption for Jesus was, that's the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law is that my heart has been transformed by God's grace, and now I'm going to be even more generous with what God has entrusted to me. Ultimately, we are not, we're not blessed simply so that we can keep it for ourselves. We're blessed to be a blessing. And Jesus actually taught this. In Matthew chapter 6, he says this, no one can serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You say, well, wait, wait a second. What do you mean God and money? Don't you mean God and Satan? Isn't that the natural opposite of that? Jesus says, nope, God and money. You can't serve both God and money because Jesus knew that the main competition for the attention and the affection of our hearts wouldn't, wouldn't be some uh, evil force out in the world as much as it would be our stuff that is tangible right in front of us. 
our finances, our money, our stuff, our possessions. And Jesus wanted to make sure, it wasn't for him, it wasn't about, you know, how much you have. Jesus wants to make sure that how much you have or how little you have doesn't have you. He wants to make sure that we're free from our possessions being our master. And, and here's the, the results of consistent generosity. If, if you live this way, you give back to God first consistently and you give back to God a percentage consistently, here's what happens. There's two huge results that move your faith forward. Number one, your faith in God grows. When you live this way consistently, your faith in God actually grows. And this is what's important. We don't give so that God will bless us. We give back to God because he has already blessed us. Right? You don't give to buy stock in the church. It's not like, well, I've been giving for a while around here, so I, you know, I'd like to have some say in what's going on. I, like, when's the next shareholder meeting? It doesn't work that way. God's not running some kind of Ponzi scheme, right? The Bible doesn't promise if you give, he's going to make you rich. For every 10 you give, he's going to give you 100. I've heard that before. It's not in the scriptures. I'm not going to say that if you love Jesus and give to Jesus, you're going to be rich and you're going to have sweet rims on your car. In fact, there are people who give consistently and generously and sometimes still struggle financially. God meets their needs, but they're not wealthy. And God does promise to take care of your needs. Not everything you want, but everything you need. And you will be more alive and experience greater faith than you have ever experienced before. Because Jesus knows that where our treasure is, our hearts will follow. And what Jesus wants is our hearts. And then in Luke chapter, uh, 11, or chapter 16, Jesus says this. If you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? How we handle our money says a lot about our trust in God. I've been blessed in my life far more than I ever thought that I would. I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I look at the blessings in my life, it's not financial blessings. I've just made a commitment in my life. I'm going to give back to God first, and I'm going to give back to God a percentage. Every time I get paid, give back to him first, give back to him a percentage, and I'm going to start with that 10%, and I'm going to try to grow from there. And then I realize I've been given the true riches of heaven, uh, family relationships and leadership influence and opportunities and friendships that last forever. Those are things that are true, the life that is truly life. And when you're faithful with something temporary like money, then God says, man, that's someone I can trust with the true riches of heaven. And unfortunately, some of us are desperate to experience the true riches of heaven, but we haven't proven faithful to be generous with the temporary currency of money. And here's what I know. Ironically, we want God to get involved in our finances when we are in need. When I'm short, I go, God, I really need you to get involved here. But we are not quite as eager to follow God's way of handling our finances when we have plenty. If at any level we think that if I faced a shortfall, I might pray and ask God to get involved in my life, then it would make sense that I handle my finances God's way while I have plenty. James wants us to move our faith forward. And if you want to move your faith forward in this area, you want to continue to grow spiritually, to spiritual maturity, very few things will help you do that, like consistent generosity, because it's not about more. It's about how you manage what God has entrusted. But here's the second thing that happens. Not only will your faith grow, but God's mission is accomplished. God always works through people. We are plan A, and there is no plan B. All right, so this is it. Frankly, I question God's judgment a little bit. Looking at myself, you know, I'm just like, all right, all right. 
But here's the reality. Uh, God is entrusted to us, and we return it back to God through our local church, and God always works through people. And God uses the collective efforts to do incredible things locally and around the world. That's why uh, when the Apostle Paul is starting churches all over the Roman Empire, he starts a church in Corinth, and he writes this letter back to them, and he says this, uh, since you excel in so many ways, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. He says, this is something you can put into practice. This is something you can excel in. And I'm not downplaying any of the gifts that we receive here at Westbridge Church. Because I know this, collectively, God uses everything, regardless of size, to uh, accomplish his mission and, and, and to move the mission of the church forward. And when I look at all that God has done in the last 16 years that we've existed as a church, it's absolutely incredible what God has been able to do. But I do want to inspire us to think about what we could accomplish together if even more of us made the decision to live this way consistently? And this is a sobering question. I think it's a great question to ask ourselves. What if every single person who called Westbridge Church their church home gave the way that I gave? Would the church grow or would the church cease to exist? That's a sobering question. And maybe you're thinking this to yourself, I hate talks like this. Can't we get back to like the other stuff, like prayer and encouragement and stuff? It's very possible that if you're feeling a little tension in your heart right now, my goal has been, like, we teach this without guilt and without manipulation. And if you feel any tension in your heart, it's very possible that this is God's Holy Spirit just pointing to something inside of you. Is it possible that this is an area God wants to work in your life? I'm asking you to trust that God will provide for you when you make God's kingdom your primary concern. And because I want to inspire you to give back 10% back to God through your local church every time that God gives to you, I want you to know I'm not asking you to do something that our family doesn't do, that our staff and their families don't do, and that we don't do as a church. Every time that you give to Westbridge Church, we take 10% of everything that comes in and we give it away to our global partners who are doing incredible work around the world. Because not only do we want to lead the, the way in this as a family, we think that the church should live this way. And we do that every single day. Every single dollar that comes in, 10% of it, we give away to our global partners. This morning, uh, we have a video from one of our global partners, Ramos Vivas in uh, Dominican Republic, to say thank you for your generosity. Watch this. Ramos Vivas ministry team in the Dominican Republic wants to make sure that you know we are thankful for you, for your prayers, your visits, and your generosity. Together and by God's grace, we have been able to impact many lives in the Dominican Republic. Children are hearing the gospel and growing in many ways through our regular children's programs. Families in need are experiencing the love of Christ and receiving hope during difficult times. New community members have full-time jobs and have access to safe drinking water. Young people are learning what it feels like to put their faith in action. They are growing as leaders and starting to see how much we can do when we work together as a team. You are an important part of this team. We couldn't do this without you. And we want you to know that we are grateful for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Through your generosity, you need to know you support these guys every time that you give. And in the last couple of years that we've been partnering with them, we've been able to help them get a water station up and running, provide jobs for locals, water for people there, uh, provide a truck 
for their, uh, to be able to deliver the water. Uh, they're now working in four different communities with kids. They have m- multiple staff that they've been able to grow all because of your generosity. Every time that you give to Westbridge, percentage of it goes to these guys. Percentage of it goes to our different global partners around the world. In fact, since we started the Legacy Project in 2020, we've given away over $500,000 because of your generosity. That's amazing. And I'm just telling you, this is the joy of living this way. It's absolutely unbelievable. Your faith in God grows, and God's mission around the world gets accomplished. So I want every single one of us to consider returning 10% of everything God entrusts to us as just a way of being consistent in our generosity. And to be honest with you, someone did that for you. The the church, Westbridge Church started 16 years ago, and it was started by, uh, we had, you know, no money. And we had a couple of churches that saw what we were doing. One was in San Diego and one was in Seattle. And we had friendships with some of the pastors there. And they said, hey, we want to get behind you guys. And the people of their churches said, there's a church starting in St. Michael, Minnesota. Uh, We've never heard of that place. We'll probably never visit there unless we're going on vacation in February. That's probably an exotic place to go. But uh, outside of that, we'll never go there. But if they're going to create a place for people to find and follow Jesus in St. Michael, Minnesota, we're behind it. And collectively, people who in churches in San Diego and in uh, Seattle gave money so that we could start a church. And consistently, they gave. Consistently, they gave and helped support so that we could get off the ground and get started. The chair that you're sitting in was paid for by someone else. Why? Because we believe in the mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. We want to continue to do the same thing for people in our community and for people around the world. And so that's what our legacy offering is all about. That's what our legacy project is all about. And uh, let me just say three things, and then we're going to close. First, this is not a message of help. We need your money. If you don't give today, the church is going to close its doors in three weeks. I've heard those messages at churches before. And here's what I want you to know. We're healthy financially. We manage the finances in a way that creates margin so that we can do more ministry. And so that's important for you to know. We've made a commitment that we would never teach from a position of need because I never want the message to be desperation. So I just want you to know we're healthy. This is, we don't even want something from you. I just want something for you. And God doesn't want something from you. God wants something for you. He wants you to experience the joy of generosity. Second, uh, when we continue to grow in spiritual maturity, generosity is one of those areas that gets affected. As you become spiritually mature, as you follow Jesus, generosity grows. And we are naturally able to do more ministry. So here's what you need to know. As, um, As we receive more as a church, All that does is create more margin. The goal is not like, hey, uh, all right, nobody's bonuses are tied to that or anything like that. It's the more that comes in, the more ministry we get to do. The more margin is created and the more ministry we get to do and help people and serve people. And third, many of you already do this. So many of you already live this way. So many of you already consistently bring back out of what God has entrusted to you. And so many of you have already prayerfully considered what could I do above and beyond my regular giving as a part of the Legacy Project. And I want you to hear me say, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. We could not, we wouldn't exist as a church without so many of you who just say, God, you've entrusted it to me. I'm going to return it back to you. And so I want you to hear me say, thank you for your generosity. It's making a difference. God so loved the world that he gave. At the center of the message of Jesus is a heart of generosity towards us from God. God so loved you, God so loved me that he gave, that whoever puts their faith in Jesus Whoever trusts him and follows his way of living will experience eternal life. That is the gift that is offered every single one of us, and it isn't based on anything. At the heart of the message of Jesus is a heart of generosity from God towards us. If you've never said yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family, 
I want you to know that invitation is extended to you. It's not something you behave your way into. It's an, ex- it's an invitation that's extended to you from the God who created you and loves you. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, you can do that by saying yes as we uh, just agree in your heart with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins and forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. I'm thank you that you've never walked away from me. And I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son, make me your daughter and help me to follow your way of living as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, for every one of us, may we have hearts that are open to generosity, recognizing you don't want something from us, you want something for us. And so may we open our hearts and open our minds and open our hands to give out of what you've entrusted to us so that our faith would grow and that we could make a difference in this world. And may it leave a legacy that outlives our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.